Welcome to a Words, Beats, and Life podcast. This episode features the Alternative Winter Break series. What's going on, family? It's yours truly, Mazi Mutafi, Executive Director of Words, Beats, and Life, here for day number four, of this week anyway, of the Alternative Winter Break. Uh, if you've been tuning in, you know that these conversations have been amazing, learning about what's inspired some of the country's greatest media artists, authors, and creators. Today, I have one of my mentors here who, who, who probably doesn't even know he's a mentor because I've just been studying from a distance watching what he's been doing in terms of publishing, but also organizing, bringing communities together in conversation about the power of hip hop and the power of hip hop communities to transform the, the conditions in which we live. It's my honor to introduce to all of you, uh, my good brother, Bakari Katwana. Peace. How's it going, brother? All right. Thanks so much for being with us. Um, I know that you are in the midst of doing a whole bunch of things, including I saw you were doing something yesterday on Clubhouse. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that was my first, that was my clubhouse debut yesterday. And you decided to go in like all in. I thought a list of folks that you had that were going to be. Yeah, in yeah, we had a pretty crazy lineup. I mean, I kind of felt like we needed to make a big splash. So, <laughs> Joe out, Dave Mays from the Source, producer Cardo, uh, Meezy, manager for Twenty One Savage, Jasiri, uh, X of One Hood, and Treva Lindsay. Uh, professor at Ohio State University Women's Studies, and she teaches classes on hip hop. So that was that was the crew. It was good though. It was a good conversation. The topic was hip hop, pandemic, and innovation. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So you always you you always come with the the most relevant topic of the moment, whether that was something around the election or, or now the pandemic. You're, you're always at the cutting edge of conversation about the ways in which hip hop communities can engage and be resources. Yeah, I mean, I try to think about what is the most relevant thing we should be talking about right now, and also never to dumb it down. Because I feel that people are, um, our people are instinctive intellectuals. And so I feel like we just talk about it where it is. I think, I, I think you know, that's how I grew up as a young person. You know, people just talk and they talked and you just had to catch up. <laughs> and so that's kind of, I feel like how it goes, but we try to, you know, keep it on the cutting edge of what's happening um, and always blending politics and, and hip hop. Well, so that, that's really exciting, especially because that, that's where you are right now. But let's, let's do this. Let's, let's start this conversation maybe back at the at the beginning um and and even be, before your beginning i wonder I'm, i've been starting all these conversations off by asking about people's family and how much they know about their family right and it's been interesting like jessica Cameron was on yesterday and talked about her blood family but also like her her intuitive family the people that she knows that are part of that tree but right. she doesn't know their names or where they were from in every instance um i wonder how, how much do you know about your own your own family tree man um, you know, it's funny. I spent a lot of time, um, probably about 25 years ago, might've been longer than that. might've been 30 years ago, um, tracing, uh, my family tree before it was f- fashionable for people to do their genealogy. And 
my family, uh, my parents, I'm from Long Island. My parents moved to Long Island in 1955. Um, I was born in 66. They, you know, they they were um, they were uh, stunned by the Emmett Till um, situation. My mom actually just decided she wasn't going back to the South. They were born in North Carolina, um, Elizabeth City area, um, in the Outer Banks area, um, and they they were primarily uh, farm laborers. Um, my my mom's parents <laughs> were were from there. Their, their, their grandparents and going back, um, my family on both sides, um, to, I think my earliest ancestor, um, I traced on my own to, um, 18, early 1800s, I think 1818. Um, and so they were, um, you know, they were enslaved and they were, uh, some of them were in shipping, um, that Outer Banks area the coast there elizabeth city area is is actually a naval um a naval area a lot of my family um grew up and were navy folks um i have ancestors who fought in both world war one and world war two um and so they were they were they were laborers and my parents were um were migrant workers. I don't know if anyone's ever seen that uh, television. I mean, I'm sorry, the movie with um, Erica Badu and and um, what's the brothers in there? Um, Heavy D is in there, right? Heavy D and Erica Badu and um, the Cider House Rules. And um, that was my parents. They were migrant workers. They would farm white uh, white uh, sweet potatoes in in North Carolina, and then they would come up in the summers. Uh, and fall into the fall and farm uh, white potatoes in Long Island. And so just one year, my mom was just like, I'm not going back. And so um, they, they, they moved, they, they would leave the, their kids, then my older brother and my older sister with my father's mother. And then they would go up for two, three months and then come back. So one year my mom said she wasn't going back. My father wanted to go back, he gets back. And my grandmother's like, listen, you better go get your wife because I'm not going to be taking care of these kids any longer. So um, my father got the kids, came back to Long Island, and we've been in Long Island ever since. Wow. Um, yeah. that, that, that's, a, that's a completely unique story so far. To be honest, I didn't even know, and I feel terrible for not knowing this, that, that migrant workers came from the South to the North to, to farm. I didn't even know that was a yeah. thing. Yeah, that was a thing. Yeah, that was a thing. Uh, it was a big thing. Um, you know, so yeah, that, of course, before we get into the uh, era in which, you know, people are coming up from, you know, you know, other parts outside of the country. But certainly in those early days, like, um, there were migrant workers going up even as far as, you know, Massachusetts and even Vermont, I believe. But my parents uh, were, were to long out. My, my family, my parents didn't feel New York City. So it's like they got to New York City. They like nah, because they were, you know, they were they were down south country folks, and so they was like, this ain't it. So they kept they they decided that yeah, Long Island was a place that they could really uh, uh, live. And actually, um, I was born in Southampton um, of what people call the Hamptons, uh, what we call the other Hamptons. There's a a, a, a very uh, vibrant old black community out there. Several ways of migration. You know, my families came in the 30s. There was an earlier wave of black folks out to 
that area, Southampton, East Hampton, Bridgehampton, Sag Harbor. I want to say that had to have been in the in the 30s. Um, but and we would we would meet the, some of those folks. But many of the families that I knew growing up were my cousins. My my mom, um, she her uh, her sister, um, their first cousins. Um, so I grew up with a lot of my second with a lot of my second cousins. We played on like sports teams together, primarily basketball. There's actually a film made about my high school basketball team that was produced by Shaquille O'Neal. Um, and the film was called The Killer Bees. And so um, I played on three of my years of high school on those teams. And I believe we won two New York State championships. We went to the champ uh, to the States uh, all three times. We lost the first year, then we won the second two years. But um, big basketball town. Many of the folks on the team were my cousins. Um, I think um, one year, I want to say it was at least five of us. Um, so it was kind of bugged out, but a small, small town, everybody kind of knew everybody. You know, I go out there now, I can be driving down. It's like a couple of streets that's basically the black community in each of these towns. I can drive down some of these streets and I can see some of these kids that I don't even know, but I can recognize their facial features and almost point out uh, what, what family they're from. So kind of a bugged out uh, situation, but that's, that's kind of the whole story in a nutshell. Well, so so, <laughs> what's funny about almost all these conversations? Everyone jumps to high school. Let's let's go all the way back though, because we started with your moms and your dad, mm-hmm. uh, and your grandmother and the role that she played in helping to raise you all early on. Can can you remember what's your what's your earliest memory of doing something creative, whether that was wh- whatever that is, your earliest creative memory? <laughs> you know, I used to write when I was uh, like in the second or third grade. And my my siblings used to make fun of me. I would write these stories, and I really didn't have a lot to say. But you know, I di- I didn't like to be hot. I didn't like to be too hot. So I used to write these stories um, that would talk about how hot it was, and I and they would make jokes about it. They thought it was funny, but you know, so no one was surprised when I ended up being a writer because that was a part of uh, you know just something that I started doing. At a, at a very early age, I, I was reading a lot at a young age. Um, outside of that, I mean, uh, I don't, I don't, I, I, I read a lot, I wrote a lot, but you know, at a, outside of sports, I wouldn't say I was very creative. Couldn't really draw or anything like that. Um, I can remember when um, one of my cousins who lived two doors down from me. Uh, first got his DJ equipment and I would go over to his house and be fooling around with it. But I, I, I didn't really have an instinct for that either. So, you know, um, no, I can't think of it. I mean, it's a good question. That was a great answer though. Cause, cause yeah. it's, it's so funny. Like one of the things about being a young creative is that we often um, diminish what it is that we did because it didn't live up to whatever. Yeah. We yeah. Well, you know, as you're talking, one of the other things that, you know, I did, you know, growing up in Long Island um, in Bridgehampton, you know, you know, we all did. I, I grew up p- pretty much in a black existence. You know, people hear the Hamptons and they think, oh, it's this exclusive area. I mean, we saw that, but we didn't live that. So like the church I went to was black. The high school I went to was 95 to 98% black. The, um, you know, my neighborhood, the street that I lived on, everyone, everyone was black. So, but we, but in my high school, we had a lot of, we had primarily white teachers. I had two black teachers on my whole um, childhood, but 
going to church, uh, my parents were into the church. And so we went to church and sang on the choir and um, acted in the Christmas plays and things of that nature. So, you know, that that was, I guess, a, a little bit of a creative uh, uh, streak. One year, I think I played like a like a like a judge or an attorney. Me and my cousin both. I can't remember. One was the judge, one was the attorney, but I can't really remember all the details. But that was the extent of my uh, acting <laughs> debut. No doubt. I mean, but to be honest, the, the writing that you were doing, I, to me, I would qualify that as a creative act. The idea that you're yeah. using your imagination to tell yeah. the stories. What was one of the things I'd love to know about that that second grade uh, Bakari was if your cousins were were clowning you about it. How did you find encouragement to keep writing? Well, it wasn't my cousins; it was my sisters and brothers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I have, um, I, I there, there are eight of us. Uh, I actually had a brother who who passed. It was nine of us, um, but it was it was uh, eight of us for most of my my life. And you know, you know, all of them. My and the other thing about my parents is neither one of my parents um, finished high school. My father went to the second grade. Um, my mother went to the tenth grade. But they were education fanatics. Like they, something had happened in their lives that they early on that they knew the power of what education could mean for us, and they impressed that upon us. So all of my uh, siblings are college graduates, but we were the first, um, the first generation uh, in, in our in on both sides of my family um, to do that. But. Um, so yeah, um, so my 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 siblings would would, would clown me because you know you you in a big family and you I was uh, I have a younger sister. Everyone else was older, so the older ones like my my brothers are eight and nine years older than me. So they would constantly clown me. The 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 upside of that is you get tough skin pretty early, which as a writer that's what you need. I see people now who write they get into these you know I never get into online arguments. You know what I'm saying because as a writer. You learn early. You can't. You're not gonna be able to argue with everybody who doesn't like something you you said or doesn't agree with something you said. And so I think I kind of got that instinct, um, you know, growing up in a in a big family. No doubt, mm -hmm. brother, has made you tough. <laughs> so, so you talked about having two only two African American teachers in your K through twelve. Yeah. I'm curious. Right. Can, can you think back to? A teacher that maybe encouraged that writing, whether that was maybe that was middle school or or high school. Who who was a good question. along the way? Um, you know, I had such an amazing cadre of teachers, man. Um, I went to you know I, I mentioned I grew up in Bridgehampton, and Bridgehampton is a village in the town of Southampton, and my teachers were you know pretty much all white except for these two teachers that I had but they were they were great people man and they they poured so much into the into the into the kids and um they gave me a lot of hands-on we were a small school like um my graduating class I think was like maybe 12 12 students and so it was basically because um we're in this kind of resort area and the and the many and the black families they're just living there many of the you know millionaire home type people they're just coming out for the summer so it was a it was an area that had a huge tax base and that tax base supported the the, the high school the high school i went to was k through 12. um you know a lot of teachers man that i, I remember um i had a i had a science teacher named mr trages and he was 
very hard on me, but very like brutally honest. And so, you know, he would talk to me about things like, you know, he would he would be saying to me, like, you know, as a young black man, you can't get caught up in sports. You got to focus on your books. Like he would say things like that to me. And at first I was like, who is this guy? And like, why does he think he can say this to me? But he'd also taught both of my my older brothers. And um, there was a an English teacher. Um, her name was Nancy Sykes. Uh, she was just out of um, a, a college and she was a great teacher as well that I had. There was an English teacher I had before her who had passed. Man, I can't remember what her name is right now, but another another woman who took great interest in me. Um, Nancy Seitz would give me books to read like Black Boy by Richard Wright, um, uh, Claude Brown, Man Child in the Promised Land, and, and Autobiography of Malcolm X. So I started reading these books because she could see that I was reading beyond you know what was happening in the classroom and she was like you should read this you should read. and so i read i read this stuff so that was a that was a big early influence um i'm trying to think of some of the but my black teachers i had two black teachers one was my fourth grade teacher her name was mrs humphreys and mrs humphreys was the first african-centered uh thinker that i had met i mean she 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 was straight out of the 70s she dressed in African garb, she rocked the natural, and she um, she poured into us at an early age. You know what it meant to be black. She played the guitar, and she would we would be sing. She have she'd have us singing songs and stuff uh, in class to break up the monotony. And it was something about our class that she was fascinated by. So when we when we left, when we were ready for us to go to the fifth grade, I think there was an opening in the fifth grade. They were gonna hire a new teacher. She's like, I wanna be the fifth grade teacher. So she actually became my fourth grade teacher and then also my fifth grade teacher. But she was she was amazing. She was wonderful. She was, you know, very generous and very nice. Um, there was another teacher, my Spanish teacher. I had seventh grade through 12th grade, the same uh, uh, a guy, Mr. Mr. Paradin was his name. He was Haitian. He had he had um, come to the United States. Uh, he was you know really good with languages. He he spoke both Spanish and French. He taught both. Um, but he was one of the most just kind of pure-hearted, generous, uh, and 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 again he poured so much into us when we when I was in my um, I believe my sophomore year he had decided that we should have a Spanish club. And so we, and he's like, we're going to raise money and I'm going to take you guys to Mexico. And so that's what we did. Um, so he was a big influence. He, he also was a musician and he played, uh, he had a band called the Merrymakers and they would play around the Hamptons, you know, during the summer. So I would see him around town in the summertime, but then also, you know, he was my he was my uh, my Spanish teacher. So another 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 great influence and someone that really pushed me. I also had a, um, a guidance counselor who was a black woman. Uh, so I can remember going through the 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 process of applying for for colleges and she would, you know, sit with us and uh, talk about schools and things of that nature. So those those were some of the 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 early uh, influences. But uh, I had a math teacher who was also amazing and spent a lot of time with me, like one on one. Um, and that was that was the program there. They really poured into the students um, that they felt 
more serious and, and, and really trying to go to the next level. Um, I also played saxophone as a kid. I guess that was creative. Um, I started playing saxophone when I was in the second grade, I think, and I played it second grade through high school and had the same music teacher for that as well. Um, and we did like, um, we played in different bands and stuff. And so that was another part of, of, of my, my early orientation. All right, Bakari, so officially, every interview you do after this, if someone asks you, if you when were you creative, you got to name the fact that you was a novelist as a child, you was in a choir, you were acting, you uh, you played the yeah. <laughs> You don't want creativity for someone's like, I wasn't that creative. Yeah, well, I didn't. I guess I didn't look at it like that. It was just the stuff we were doing, you know? No doubt. Yeah. What, what I've loved so far in, in these interviews is that there's a, there's a few through lines. A lot of people played sport. Mm-hmm. A lot of people that I'm talking to, and a lot of people also read the autobiography of Malcolm X or yeah. played records that had his speeches on it. So it feels like one of the things that I need to do after this is rewatch all these interviews and create a reading list. Yeah, that's interesting. That that people that shaped the lives of of the folks at least that I talked to in, in this series. Yeah, I wonder because a big part of what you know motivates us is the absence of guidance counselors in public schools today. There's been studies about the fact that many schools use guidance counselors to do things like monitoring the hallways or monitoring lunch mm-hmm. as opposed to doing the kind of college prep work. I wonder how, how you feel like having the ability to engage with your school's guidance counselor to talk about college. And was that college in the context of sports or was that college in the context of academics? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, you know, I feel like every class as they were becoming seniors, she would, I mean, maybe when they, it probably even did the junior year, she started talking with them. But um, I actually played um, baseball, basketball, and I ran cross country all, all, all my high school years. Um, but, but my guidance counselor, what, you know, also, um, she had me come to her to her house and do work for her. So I would go by her house and she'd have me in the yard, you know, weeding and and raking up the leaves and and, and, th- and things like that. So so I got to know her her pretty well and she took a, a, a great interest in me. Um so yeah, I mean, I think that the guidance counselor um I would say m- more so in terms of sports or not. I mean, a guidance counselor, she was definitely just thinking about college. Because I was on a basketball team that was relatively popular, um, we had a lot of interface with people that wanted, you know, us to go to play college ball. I had a couple of recruiters. One was Colgate University and a couple of other places. But um, my my high school coach at the beginning of our senior year would ask us like, are you guys serious about, you know, playing uh, sports in, in in college? And I told him no, because already I was thinking that, you know, I'm not like six feet seven or anything. And, you know, I, I felt like I wanted to apply my mind. That was something I already was thinking about. I wanted to think about how, you know, I think one of the things that my parents impressed upon me because my father, you know, they were they were they were laborers um, and their parents were laborers and their parents before them were laborers and so forth and so on. And so they really impressed upon me that you can you can make a living with your mind. And so I, and so that was important to me. My father, um, after the um, farming stuff, you know, kind of subsided, 
he was a mason. He was like bricklayer. He would like, um, you know, do foundations for buildings and 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 things of that nature. My mother worked as a nurse's aide in the hospital. And so, you know, they were doing seriously. But my mom was also a member of the 1199 union. She was very proud of that. She was a union member. And it's funny because as a, as a kid, I didn't really understand what that meant. But as I got older and I started getting deeper into activism, I'm like, well, wait a minute, you know? Um, but she was really proud of that. Um, so those were, you know, some of the, the, the experiences. And, uh, and the 1199 folks also had a scholarship in those days um, for some of their members' children. And so that was something I, was, I applied for as a, as a, a, as a student um, thinking about college. So that all of those things were reinforcing college as well as my teachers. Um, and I don't know, uh, you know, in New York City, they have the, uh, in those days, they had something called like the Regents uh, Scholarship that people would get, you know, the Regents Scholars. So it was, a, it was already kind of a college bound uh, track. Uh, that they had. And so you you were in that as a ninth grader. And I was aware of it because I had older brothers and sisters who had had gone through uh, 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 school. That was a really great advantage for me uh, as a student, going to the school where my brother went, who was eight, my, one of my brothers is eight years older than me, one is nine. And so like, then, you know, several sisters, like in between, like three sisters in between uh, us and them and and all of them kind of like schooling you along the way so that stuff was very I would say that was more influential than the guidance counselor because when I chose colleges I basically chose the schools that my uh, one of my older brothers had had gone to he was a um, he was a he went to Brown University so I just basically applied to I asked him well where did you apply to school and so he told me I wrote them all down and, and those were the places basically that I applied to um, so I'm curious let's, let's let's go ahead and get into the college experience um, for, so high school you're, you're, you're using your body uh, to express yourself in terms of sports but you decide in high school you want to do something different with your college career. So you decided to go to Brown. What did no, you major Brown. I applied. I didn't get in. Oh. <laughs> I went to the University of Rochester. Yeah. And I said I applied to the schools that my brother applied to. Quite <laughs> listening. My bad. Yeah. Um, so what did you, when you went to college, did you already have a major in mind or can you talk a little bit about yeah. that process? Yeah. Now, another thing about that was because I had older siblings who were in college, I can remember as a young uh, uh, man, you know, young kid, really, basically, um, my parents would take my brother to school at Brown. And so they would uh, they would either drive around Long Island, go through Connecticut and come around that way. Or there's a ferry that runs between uh Orient Point, I think it's Greenport, New York, to uh, to uh, New London, Connecticut, and we take this ferry. It's like a two two hour ferry or something, and we take this ferry over and then drive uh, my brother to to Providence. So I remember doing that and you know kind of being on a canvas and like a completely a foreign world. And the other thing is we played a Christmas tournament at Southampton College. And that was another thing that was like, man, this is amazing. We're on a college campus. So those kind of experiences, I think, started to kind of make me think that, you know, it was something I wanted to do and that it was something that was possible. I don't know if that answered your question. I kind of moved away. Oh, you were asking me, how did I, uh, what was I majoring in? It's funny. I had a, um, 
I had a, I, I took shop in, in, in school as well. That was something people used to do. I don't know if people do that now. Um, and so my shop teacher was also my driver's ed teacher. And he, um, you know, he was uh, interested in, 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 in architecture. And so me and him started talking about this and he used to do some kind of drafting. So he had me doing drafting like, I would just go meet with them one-on-one. And so I came out of high school think, not really knowing what to do. And so I was like, well, maybe I'll major in mechanical engineering. And so I, I started out at the University of Rochester uh, majoring in mechanical engineering. I did that for my freshman year. Um, and then I read James Baldwin's The Fire Next Time, um, the, the summer of my freshman year. And that book captivated me so much. And I was like, this is what I want to do. And so that is how I, I then changed my major to English and, and, and then and just kind of carried on from there. And, and so what was it about, I mean, it's a seminal book, but what was it about the book that would radically change the direction of your life? Yeah, I mean, I think that I was just so moved by it. And I thought if words can do can, if if this book i guess at the time it was written what the 60s and i remember thinking and at this point it was the 80s and i was thinking man you know of course when you're young you think something 20 years ago was a long time so i was like if this book written so long ago can have this you know emotional kind of moving impact on me like this is powerful stuff this is what i this is what i want to be able to do i think that that's that that's it was that it was what he was saying about race, it was what he was saying about the black experience. And, you know, I, I really, I, I, I ended up reading a lot of James, I've read, I, I think I've read most of James Baldwin's stuff. I actually did my master's thesis in English on James Baldwin. Um, and this was 89. So, I mean, in those days, James Baldwin wasn't as fashionable as he's become in the last, you know, decade or so. But, um, that was a that was one of my early big big influences and and so i'm curious about particularly this undergrad and even graduate uh school talking about the people like a lot of the conversations i've had up to this point were about how in college that's when when some people's activism began uh, whether that was because of a bsu or a student government right. association. you talked about learning about uh the, the organization that your mother was a part of Right. Activism. So, so does the activism begin in college? I would say definitely. Um, you know, I was a student activist. I was uh, I was a vice president of a, a black student union. I was a college student at the time when um, most college students were engaging in the anti-apartheid movement. So that was really how we cut our teeth as as activists. Um, and man, it, it, you know, being a part of the Black Student Union and, you know, working on the budgets and trying to get resources so we could bring the speakers that we wanted. Um, we also started study groups. Really, we got the idea, I believe uh, Kwame Toure was somebody who I met and I spent a lot of time with um, as a student. He was um, married to Miriam McCabe and Mary McCabe's sister lived in Rochester and was actually our advisor um, uh, to, the, to the Black Student Union. And so when 
when when Kwame Toure, aka Stokely Carmichael, would come to town to visit us, I mean to visit her, he would have they would have us over for dinner. And so I got to spend a lot of time with him. Um, that was a big, big influence and to talk about the 60s movements and stuff. But as a college student and in these organizations, um, I began to, we began to encounter and interface with people in the movement because it, it became, we became aware that we have this budget, we can bring whoever we want. And so I remember we brought, um, oh God, um, I'm trying to remember what his name is now. He's the head of Julian Bond uh, uh, had come. We met, I, we met, um, that's how I met Maulana Karinga for the first time. That's how I met Hakeem Adabudi, who I later worked for. Um, for the first time, Sonia Sanchez, um, Amiri Baraka, and and many, many Farrakhan and many others, um, through bringing them uh, to to uh, Bell Hooks, who's another big uh, influence of mine. So yeah, so those college, the student activism was pretty much primarily a lot of it was around, um, a lot of it was around South Africa, but then. Some of the students who were women that I knew, they started something called the Black and uh, Latino Women's Alliance. And so they were going real hard on the feminism and they were making us feel, as men feel real stupid if we didn't know this stuff. And so um, we started to read Bell Hooks and then Bell Hooks came to campus and I, I've been friends with Bell Hooks since then, which is crazy. But um, she's been a big influence on me. She actually wrote cover comments for my first book, uh, The Rap on Gangster Rap. So yeah, the student activism was absolutely critical. And you know, for a lot of people during those years, once you caught the bug of the student activism, you know, you were gonna be an activist. It wasn't anything else you were gonna do after that. So that was, um, and meeting, and a lot of older students, some graduate students, um, some students who were singing when we were freshmen and sophomore, they were kind of pulling our coat. I can remember as a freshman, my freshman year was the year that uh, Louis Farrakhan had the big uh, coming out uh, at Madison Square Garden. And we were flirting with the nation in, in those days as, as undergraduates. There was a brother who uh, was the head of the mosque in Rochester who had been a student at the University of Rochester. And so we were close with him and we would go to the mosque and stuff on uh, on the meeting day, and he would then uh, he kind of pushed us like, "Hey, you guys should charter a bus and bring students to this uh, to this meeting." So we did that. Um, so those were some of the the experiences that 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 come to mind. I'm curious because you're, you're one of nine, and all of your your siblings were also college students. Was that was that student leadership experience unique to you, or did, did any of your siblings have a similar experience? Um, you know, my brothers, I don't, I, you know, they're so much older than me. It, was, it wasn't something we ever really talked about. You know, my one, my oldest brother's in the medical field. Um, I've never really, you know, he kind of was kind of a late bloomer around political issues and stuff. Uh, so I don't, I wouldn't imagine he was doing that. My oldest brother was an ROTC um, a student. And so he wasn't very political as a student either. My sisters were uh, activists. They were also Deltas. Uh, and so they actually impressed upon me about the whole history of Black uh, fraternities and sororities. And so after, go they went to school at the University of Buffalo. And so Buffalo and Rochester are like an hour apart. So when they were students 
we go back and forth visiting and stuff. And so I got kind of the bug of the of the black uh, fraternity and I pledged Kappa. And that was other, another big variable that uh, influenced me as a student because in those days on the predominantly white campuses, it was the um, black fraternities and sororities that were the, also the activists on our campuses that I knew in the area. And so we were at the forefront of a lot of the activism. I also started a, new, a, uh, a, a newsletter uh, paper for the Black Student Union um, that we called the grapevine. It had existed back in the 60s, I think. It had gone defunct. And so I resurrected that. And that was one of the things I do. One of my earliest kind of editorial uh, uh, endeavors. It's, it's really so interesting how, and maybe it's just my, the circle of people I've invited is, is too small, but it feels like the creation of publications, the organizing, the using of university budget, the roles that like the, these stories seem so similar. Um, and have and have produced some of the country's most important yeah. writers. Yeah, I mean, I think that I've I've written some and researched some about the uh, rise of black students on uh, predominantly white campuses, and just that whole wave of students after Dr. King was killed that come on to um, uh, predominantly white campuses. The campuses kind of open up after that. Um, and so, yeah, I think that, you know, they, the, the campuses kind of were, were trying to figure out how to do racial justice in a different way. And some of that was it was the demand for black black studies and black faculty, but also it was more uh, black students on these campuses. And so that that all of that stuff, I think, kind of happens at the same time. And for a while many of those students are are you know students who are um who come out of the african-american experience whose parents were um you know out of the south and had come to the north or wherever and many of those students were that for those first kind of few generations um when they seem to be a little bit more aggressively um recruiting those students um out of places like new york city and Long Island, et cetera, um, um, where, where we went to school upstate New York. It was interesting because when I went to college, I was at the tail end of that aggressive effort. There used to be uh, a scholarship at the University of Maryland called the Banneker Key Scholarship, which okay. was used to, to give um, a, a, a full scholarship to African-American students, particularly from cities like Baltimore and from throughout the state of Maryland. Right. I, I wonder... Um, when you think about the the work that you decided to produce post um, undergrad, post grad school, um, how do you think about the work that you do? Because so much of what we've been talking about up to this point is about community building and organizing and getting people attached to, to larger priorities. I, I have an opinion, but I wonder how you think about kind of the body of work that you've worked to create um, over the course mm -hmm. of your career. Man, you know, the the writing, the writing to me, you know, when I was, um, so I, I, I did two master's degrees at the University of Rochester after undergrad. Um, and then I, in that year of graduate school, I got to know Haki Matabuti, who founded Third World Press. And Haki, um, 
offered me a job when I when I was graduating and I moved to Chicago and started working there. Um, I was very interested in understanding the history of movement and trying to think about how to build a movement in our time. And so that was that was kind of what drove my 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 reading. And also then it started to drive my writing. When I when I lived in Chicago and I worked at Third World Press, I was at Third World Press for five years. I worked as an editor in various capacities. I got to meet to meet a ton of activists that heavily influenced me. Uh, Hannibal Afrique, who was a large part in Chicago of the uh, in, of the independent black school. Uh, movement and black curriculum in the city. Um, uh, people like Jacob Carruthers, who was a part of the um, Association for Classical African Civilizations and uh, one of the first folks within his uh, group that uh, started to uh, to read the hieroglyphs and teach other people how to how how to read them. Um, uh, I mentioned. Um, I mentioned Sonia Sanchez and Amiri Baraka. I, I got to spend time with them more through my work at Third World Press. So Third World Press kind of became formative for me. But also I met people like people when I was editing, I was Gil Scott Heron's editor. And so I got to spend time with Gil Scott Heron. Uh, as we put his book together, So Far So Good. I was uh, editor for Francis uh, Cress Welsing's The ISIS Papers. Um, and, and, and so I worked on that project primarily with her sister. So those experiences um, really heavily shaped me. I also, Chicago is an interesting place. Like I would run into Sam Greenlee walking down the street in Hyde Park. I would, um, uh, my wife now, um, then my girlfriend, um, Lerone, Lerone Bennett lived in her building and I would encounter Lerone Bennett on the elevator. And so I, I would strike up these conversations with Lerone Bennett and I would strike up conversations with all these older, old school activists and they were schooling me. And so Lerone Bennett, I was asking him about writing and editing and how, cause you know, Lerone Bennett was, um, he was in the early wave of, of folks who began to teach at the university as the black studies movement exploded. And one of, one of the problems was they couldn't find people to teach because they didn't, they didn't know who they were. And so Lerone Bennett was already writing. He had already done the series, um, which be, which was a series he published. He, he wrote this, this series of essays in um, uh, Ebony, which ended up becoming his book before the Mayflower, you know, basically making the argument that we were here, you know, before the Mayflower and, and so forth, similar to what's happening now with the 1619 argument um, you know, so Lerone Bennett did that work back then, but Lerone and I would talk about publishing and editing and I would be saying, man, what, what, what should I do? You know, I want to, I want to, he's like, you got to find out where your generation is and you got to be in conversation with your generation. So that is where I first started getting in the idea that I should be at a hip hop magazine. Um, that was Lerone Bennett. Uh, influence that did that. So I worked at Third World Press for five years. I met, I somehow finagled a meeting with some people, with the people at The Source, and I ended up going to work at The Source magazine. So I, I did my first five years out of college at Third World Press. I left Third World Press. I taught briefly at the University of Houston in Texas Southern. And then from there, I went to The Source magazine. So, but but that, the, 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 the that was driven by my 
uh, my interest in understanding the history of black political movement and trying to find my place uh, within it. So at what point do you begin to do the work on the rap on gangster rap? Is this, is this after or this before, during? The rap on gangster rap is a book I wrote in my, um, I want to say it was in my last couple of years at Third World Press. That book came out in 1994, I think. Um, I started writing that. It's funny because I ended up this last year doing this um, this this fellowship at, at Harvard uh, in the Hutchins Center run by uh, Henry Louis Gates, but also, of course, the Hip Hop Archive uh, and Research Institute run by Marcelina Morgan. And so, um, but I actually started writing about hip hop because I was reading, you know, I was reading everything that I could get my hands on. And at the time, Henry Louis Gates uh, was one of the people, um, trying to think of the other um, two English professors, Henry Louis Gates and, oh my goodness, he wrote a book called Black Studies Rap in the Academy. Houston Baker, um, they were writing a lot about hip hop. And I was like, man, I know more about hip hop than these dudes. <laughs> and so that was the impetus. The first thing I was working on was I was writing something on gun violence and how gun violence was affecting um, black people. And then I kind of pushed that to the side and I started doing this work that was called the rap on gangster rap. That, And so I basically wrote that book um, at night and on the weekends while I was working at Third World Press, editing Francis Cresswell saying, editing Gil Scott Heron and a, and a bunch of other uh, a bunch of other folks. And so, yeah, so that was kind of how my writing about hip hop began. Well, it was interesting because I actually ordered that book in advance of this interview because I mm -hmm. ordered all your books. Mm -hmm. and I, I didn't actually know about it before I found it for this interview. Okay, and I'm gonna just, I'm gonna just, um, I'm gonna, I, I need to get my charger. <laughs> I don't wanna lose it. <laughs> Sorry. No problem. I was, I was hustling, trying to be ready. And I forgot the main, one of the main things. It's all good. I'm hey, glad I'm sorry. Didn't lose the power. Yeah, I, I'm just glad I had it close by. <laughs> well, I, I was going to say that um, in in reading that book, one of the things that struck me was what it, what it felt like was your desire to basically explain hip hop to people who thought they understood it um, in a way that that wasn't necessarily like. Um, wasn't necessarily asking people not to see the what was hideous about it, but to recognize that the hideousness didn't necessarily diminish the beauty. So this right. idea, like you could be a defender but not an apologist. Right. Um. How do you feel like that book and and the fact that that how it was received set you up for the books that came after? Yeah, it's crazy, man. I always tell people that your 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 um. You never know how a book is going to change you. You know what I'm saying? Like a book is going to change your life and you just, you're not going to know until, until it's done. You know what I mean? And so, um, that book radically changed my life. Um, and I started writing it. Um, I knew that I wanted to be a writer, but, but, and which is why, I, and I wanted to be in editing and I had been doing some of that as an undergrad. And so being at Third World Press took it to a different level. I got to meet people like Gwendolyn Brooks. And I mean, I spent a lot of time with Gwendolyn Brooks. She had a huge influence on me as a writer, but Haki definitely the biggest influence of anyone. But I wrote this book. The book really um, 
as I was on the way out at Third World Press. And then when I was at Third World Press, I had spent a lot of time with Gwendolyn Brooks. And one of the things that Gwendolyn Brooks would have me do is interface with her agent. And so Gwendolyn Brooks didn't fly. So she would take the train to do her gigs. And so she was doing these gigs. And so one of, the, one of my tasks uh, that she had me doing was to make sure her books was where she was going. And so that was the first time I kind of had the thought in my mind, like, man, as a writer, you get to write the books, <laughs> but then you also get to go talk with people about the books and then people are going to pay you to do that. And so that was the first time I started to think about it in that way. Um, but that was because of Gwendolyn Brooks. So I, um, so I wrote this book, um, man, it's crazy because looking back on it, there weren't many people that were lecturing on hip hop. I remember maybe like Kevin Powell had already, I don't know if Kevin had already done the real world at that point. I don't think he, I don't know if he had, maybe I can't remember, but it was just a handful of us. Maybe Kevin Powell, maybe, um, uh, I can't, I, I, it was just a few people. Joan Morgan had already written When Chicken Heads Come Home. Nope, that came later too. So it was just a few people. And so I was the only one that I can, that I can remember that was really lecturing on hip hop and politics. That was something that I was interested in. And so I started with that. I wrote that book. That book then led me to being at The Source um, because The Source had reviewed it. And then a little bit later, they had the big staff walk out. They were looking for a new editor. I was somebody that was new and completely out of the whole New York area because I was coming at that point from Chicago and Houston and they needed new blood. They needed somebody to rebuild the staff um, because a lot of people that had, a part, people that were a part of the walkout, whether writers or freelance writers, the, the publisher then banned them from ever writing for the magazine again. So we needed to rebuild an entire new staff. And so that was how I came to um, uh, the source. And I guess in terms of the writing, one of the things that we did at the source was we would have these intense staff uh, editorial meetings. And anybody who was, uh, any editor would have to come to the table with the articles that they were proposing. And you would have to argue why this made sense. And so a lot of stuff I was doing was I was trying to talk about politics and hip hop. And so I got a lot of pushback. Like, and so people would say to me, the recurring questions, what does this got to do with hip hop? What does this political issue have to do with hip hop? So I was constantly making the argument for how something had to do with hip hop. That kind of created that early orientation that led me to start working on the book, The Hip Hop Generation. So I get the book deal for The Hip Hop Generation after several years at The Source. Um, I decide after a year, I, I supposed to write the book in a year. A year goes by, the book's not done. I decide I'm going to leave the source to write this book. So I leave the source. Uh, it's 99. I write the book in a year. The woman who signed the book ended up not um, there still. I got a new editor when I was finished. This this dude hated the book. He, he did everything to kill the book, but he was forced to deal with it. So we a year goes by, I wrote the book, a year goes by, the guy, I can't work with him. Finally one day, you know, my agent is like, the best thing to do sometimes is nothing. And I, I mean, that sounded good for about three or four months. After six months, I'm like, man, I gotta do something with this. So I call the guy up and he's gone. The, a woman answers the phone, her name is Sarah McNally. She actually runs a bookstore now in, in New York City called uh, McNally Robinson uh, Booksellers. And Sarah became my editor. She loved the book. 
And and then that that was how the hip hop generation got done. She also signed my book Why White Kids Love Hip Hop. Um, and so then by this point, I'm pretty much working independently. Once I left the source, I've been an independent um, writer and lecturer and entrepreneur doing hip hop work since then. So I would love to know um, as we get ready to wrap this up because I w- I want to kind of come back to where we started from. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I want—I'd love to know about the impetus for the decision to create the hip hop political convention and um, rap session. Yeah, those are two really great questions, man. The convention came out of—it's—it's um, it's a good question because b- both of them all—they're all inter inter interlinked. So the convention came out of. I wrote, when I wrote the book, The Hip Hop Generation, there's a part in the book where I talk about the need for a national convening, like the Gary Indiana Black Political Convention. That was kind of, I think, how the book ends. And so, um, you know, when I started lecturing on the book and I was going around, I was going, this is another thing that really influenced me was when I was at The Source, I had a budget and we would do stories on hip hop in different parts of the country. So this is the first time I began to travel around the country to begin to meet other people from other parts of the country that were doing hip hop work. This became important for the convention later on because this that's how we organized the convention. So I met a lot of people um, around the country because I was lecturing on, on hip hop. I wanna say I met Davey D during those years and me and Davey got to be close and Davey, you know, he hits you up once he knows you. And so um, Davey said to me, like, now you wrote this book, now what we gonna do? <laughs> and so, so um, I did a lecture at Harvard that um, was hosted by the the Hip Hop Archive, and it was I believe two thousand and two or three. And Raz Baraka was there. It was a hip hop education roundtable, one of the first ones they did. And in my presentation, I talk about the need for a hip hop generation version of the National uh, Black Political Convention. And so after that meeting, Raz Baraka came up to me and said, we should do that. I'd known Raz because I knew his father. I met Raz through his father. Uh, I knew his father first, um, just as, and same as uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates. I've known uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates' father for years before I met him. But, but Raz was like, we should do that. So Raz knew a friend of mine that I went to college with, an act, another activist who we were student activists together. His name is Hasim Shamari. Raz was also friends with Baye Adolfo, and my friend Hasim was friends with Baye. The four of us were the nucleus that began to plan the National Hip Hop Political Convention, but that was some of how it kind of got started. We then started, our first meeting was at Third World Press. Then we met in LA at um, Maulana Karinga's home base. We met in the Bay Area. Uh, at a, at an activist at um, God, I can't think of what the brother's name is right now. So we 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 did we did these local organizing meetings in different cities to get people who were activists in the room to talk about creating local organizing committees to send folks to the national hip hop political convention. We brought four thousand people to Newark uh, in two thousand and four to create and endorse a political agenda for the hip hop generation, and that was the that was the focus of the the the. National Hip Hop Political Convention. So they all kind of grew out of out of the pre. Everything that I've done, for the most part, has grown out of something else I was working on uh, uh, before that. 
So, so with rap sessions, would you say that's a continuation of those kind of initial? Oh, but, yes, rap sessions. I started after we ended the convention, and because the convention revealed so much, you know, um, um, one of the people that I met during the convention planning, um, I was living in Cleveland by this point, was uh, Max. Max Max Sanford, I think it was Stanford. Can't remember how he pronounces his last name, but he was one of the folks in the black. Um, oh my God! Oh, I can't, I can't, I can't think. Of, he he was an activist out of the '60s, um, and he had a big influence on the way I was kind of starting to think about, you know, what was the meaning of this um, of this uh, uh, con- convention. So the so. After during the convention, I'm I'm paying attention to everything as much as I can. And one of the things that I saw was some of the tendencies. One, people just weren't ready. A lot of young people, even though they were like we saw we had we people were into hip hop, but people weren't ready to talk. Like white kids were into hip hop, black kids were into hip hop, Latino kids were into hip hop, Asian kids were into hip hop, but they really didn't have any way of talking about political issues across these racial divides. And so that was something that stuck out in my mind about the convention because ultimately the convention was like over 90% black. Most of the people that came to the convention were black. And so that struck me, I didn't expect that. Um, We learned other things at the convention that, you know, about politics, about gender, people weren't really, uh, they didn't have their gender weighed up. Um, So it was a lot of things that we learned during the convention that I then tried to pour that into rap sessions so that by the next election, we would be better prepared. And so that's what rap sessions became. How do you begin to politically educate people in between elections so that by the time you get to the elections, people are ready, but not necessarily educating them politically just to participate in elections, but just educating them to think about politics and community and to think about politics as community. How do you build community? How do you how do you organize for change? How do you organize so that you can transform your community? And so that's that's how I started thinking about rap sessions. And so the other thing that I didn't want to do was I didn't want to undermine existing organizations. So rap sessions travel around. So what we try to do is we try to bring local activists in either on the panels or in breakout sessions, because we're leaving. So, But we want people to then join these organizations. So that those were the, some of the things that we did with rap sessions from the beginning to try to begin to build community. But the idea was out of the convention, how do you get people to think more deeply about cross-racial political organizing, gender, um, issues like that, so that you're better prepared? Because already by that point, the the um school the public school system the whole idea of civic education was already out the window and largely a part of why we got things happening like this so-called what they call in a riot which was really you know an attempt to overthrow the government um because you got a big mass of uneducated people who don't know they don't have a basic civic education and so they don't really you know they're listening to this guy they don't read, obviously, or they're reading stuff and they don't know who the source is. And I think all of that is a is a real dangerous cocktail. As this is my last question because we're, we're at time. Yes, sir. If you, if you were able to give, and you you actually have the benefit of having a, a, a young man who's just graduated, a child who's just graduated from college. If you were giving advice 
to your younger self. Maybe not that, maybe not that second grade self, but maybe like that middle school or high school self that that you wish someone had given to you. What would what would that word of advice be for that that younger mm. you younger that younger? Man, that's a tough question, man. I mean, I, 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 the first thing that came to mind when you're saying that is, I think about the hardest lessons. Um, one of the hardest lessons. I think that people have is to learn to believe in themselves. You know, I think that nobody can tell you how to do that, but you have to learn. If you're going to do anything significant, you're going to have to believe in yourself because it's going to always be doubters in your ear. People are saying, oh, you can't do that. Oh, you shouldn't do that. Oh, you're not good enough to do that. Why are you doing that? Because uh, because you have the vision. It's your vision. It's your unique vision. Um, and you have to see it through so so i would say learning to believe in yourself people people believe in a lot of things and a lot of times they believe in things because they don't believe in themselves so i think that that to me is is probably that that's been one of the hardest uh lessons i say another thing is and i don't know if you can even avoid this is sometimes you got to make some dumb decisions man dumb financial decisions i mean the some of the things that i've spent money on uh, trying to build stuff um, have, have have just been heartbreaking when I when I think back to that stuff. But once you learn that lesson, it's no it's no get it quick. It's, it it just it, it just doesn't exist. You know, it's a it's a grind, and you got to do the work. And if you do the work, when the time comes, you're gonna have the goods, and you're gonna be prepared. Bakari Katwana, I want to thank you so much. You know, there's a, there's one important thing I learned from this interview, which mm-hmm. is when I call you about something and, and it doesn't seem like a natural fit and you say, I don't know if anybody's going to care about that. I'm not listening to you. Because this was one of the most compelling, interesting interviews, your journey. I can't wait for the autobiography. Um, thank you so much for joining us to share these gems, these jewels with young people and maybe the not so young who, who want to follow in your footsteps. Um, I really appreciate it personally. Yeah, I, I, I thank you and I appreciate you. And I first encountered you. I want to say it was the nineties, man. At you were, you were, you were still at, was it not the nineties or was it somebody? I met you when you were doing a tour for hip hop generation. You actually mentioned the words beats in life. I thought I I met y'all before that at, at Maryland. That's why I knew about it. No, was it? You were at Maryland what years? So I was there, I graduated in 2002, but I think you came to lecture in 2003. Yeah, see, I met you guys before that, or at least I knew about the organization before that from coming to University of Maryland. And yeah. I think that was why I wrote about the organization in, yeah. in the book. Yeah, exactly. So I've been following you ever since, and, and uh, I really appreciate not just the work you've done in the in the abstract, but literally the investments you've made in the work we do in DC and the hip hop organizations do all over the world. So many people are indebted to you and your 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 journalism. I was gonna say scholarship, but I remember you were like your journalism, the, your ability to tell stories. So I thank God that nobody discouraged your second grade self from continuing to tell those stories because they've changed the whole world. So I appreciate that, brother. Thank you so much. Thank you and the work you do. Thank you very much, sir. All right, everybody. So we've got one more uh, discussion tomorrow with uh, DJ D Painter, also known as known as Dominic Painter. Uh, he was actually the founder or the executive director of one of DC's first hip hop organizations, 
called The Midnight Forum. He's going to talk about some of that work and the work he's been doing on radio ever since. Uh, this is all part of the inaugural Alternative Spring Break, brought to you by Words Beats. Winter Break. I guess I, I want to be out in the sun. Um, consider in, encouraging children in your life or young people in your life to enroll in our program. Let me just show a couple commercials just in case you missed them. This podcast was produced by Executive Director Mazi Mutafa. Post-production by Rhythm Lingo Music. Past episodes can be streamed on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Mixcloud. Words, Beats, and Life podcasts are produced through funding from partner grants and in-kind donations from people like you. Visit wblinc.org donate to make a contribution.